The comedian, the comedian Jerry Seinfeld, once said, I don't believe that youth is wasted on the young. I believe everything is wasted on everybody. Now, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that everything is wasted on everybody. I wonder if uh, some help we could give Mr. Seinfeld is that it's not that everything is wasted on everybody. By that, he means like things are great and we don't notice. And so everything is wasted on everybody. I think part of the reason it can feel like everything is wasted on everybody. There's a lot of Chiefs jerseys out there, by the way. Whew. I feel like I'm like leading a gang. And this is great. It's a very optimistic and kind gang. That's right. Um, part of the reason I think it can feel like everything is wasted on everybody, which we don't like that negative language, but it's because we'll go through something really awesome and fantastic and like a lot of joy, a lot of work went into it. And then when it's done, it's like, what's next? We don't slow down enough to reflect. There's a lot of great things that we know to be great, but we're just constantly looking for the next thing. And as a result, we can be less aware of the great things that have happened and just happened. I feel like that with sermon series. So when we start sermon series, what happens is we start them in a fog, like a total fog. Like has, has anybody ever, do they have fog in Missouri? I'm trying, yeah, like, like thick, thick fog, right? Where you're like, well, I really hope there isn't like a, a car stopped up here because I can't see very far, but there's cars behind me, so I've got to keep moving. That's kind of what it's like starting a sermon series. Lots of prayer goes into it, and we're like, God, what do you have for our church? What season are we in? What do you want to say? What do you want, to, what do you want us to focus on? Where in your word do you want to speak to us? And we get direction and clarity in a fog. And then the fog lifts after, like three weeks after that sermon series is done. It's like, oh, this time, in the Lord's mercy, the fog lifted like two weeks ago. It's like, oh, oh, that's what we're doing. Got it. This is fantastic. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to just kind of look back at what God has been doing these past six weeks, and you're going to hear testimonies from people. You're going to hear stories about people sitting in the same seats you're sitting in saying, man, here's how God has shown up and moved in my life in these past six weeks. Because again, we don't believe everything is wasted on everybody, but it's so easy to just rush to the next thing. What's next? What's next? What's next? Rather than to stay and linger for a hot minute and be, oh, here's what God is doing. So I said the fog lifted a couple weeks ago. Here's where the fog lifted. We've been talking a lot in this series about this cultural moment we're in. Many people who look at the data just say, hey, the church in the West is in the decline. Right? You can measure that any way you measure it. The church in the West is in decline. Attendance, interest, commitment, it's all in decline. We talked about there's like some generational uh, things that happen that bring this about. So the first generation will build something. The first generation says there's something that doesn't exist in the world. I would like for that to exist. And so they make sacrifices and they build it. The second generation lives in a world where what the first generation built 
is flourishing, right? They're like, man, we have this church where in this community there wasn't a church. It's discipling people. It's growing. And the second generation can take on a posture of just maintaining what the first generation did. There's sacrifice. There was loss. There was just this all-in commitment. But the second generation is like, we got to maintain that. The third generation typically, and these are not rules, but typically what happens, the third generation takes it for granted. They're like, yeah, this is just how it's always been. Not so. No, no, this didn't exist once, and people sacrificed a lot and made something, just, they just brought something into the world. And the third generation is like well, taking it for granted, which often leads to corruption, misuse, abuse, to where the fourth generation is living in that corruption, right? This wasn't the original intent that that first generation sacrificed for, so that we could just live in opulence. They're trying to create something beautiful. We take that for granted. We use and abuse to where the fifth generation then buries it. And what we're trying to say is we are not going to preside over the funeral of the church in the West. All right? We're not going to participate. But what do we do? Right? We're like, we're going to be all about renewal. How? We've talked about there's, there's six postures, not practices. Now, oh, if we do this like the last generation did, if we just copy what they did, now, they're trying to be faithful in the moment that God called them to, right? We're, we're in a different moment. It's like when people say, who's, who's better, Patrick Mahomes or Tom Brady? They play different football games, okay? <laughs> I see those faces, but they did, all right? Different games, different eras. But what's the posture that we can learn from the previous generation? So we talked about six postures that we want to own. And when the fog lifted, we realized, oh, there's a real posture that's foundational for all these postures. So it's not about, hey, let's remember all six of these postures and we're going to quiz you in September. And if you can't remember it, that we failed. No, but we're saying like, what's, what's a way of being, a posture that we can have that makes these postures come more naturally? And it's the posture of surrender. Can you truly be in love and be in complete control? Can you really be in love and maintain total control? I don't think so. Surrender is necessary. And so we're going to talk about the posture that we want to carry into 2023 is a posture of surrender. And we're going to talk about how surrender impacts all six of these postures. What do they look like? What does it look like when we're surrendered and we're trying to joyfully listen to God's word? We're trying to attach to him through prayer, be hospitable toward unbelievers. How does surrender impact that? So if you have a Bible, we are going to be in Matthew 6. That's going to be kind of our foundational place we're jumping off from. This week, Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 31. Matthew 6, 31. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew starts his gospel by saying that Jesus went around preaching about the kingdom of God. He was announcing that the kingdom has drawn near. Now, when you hear that the kingdom is near, you might think like that's like Smithton Middle School is near here. That's not what the New Testament means when they say the kingdom is near. When the kingdom is near, it's like, oh, it's here. It is so close. It is present among us. 
The kingdom of God has arrived. How do we live in that kingdom? That's the Sermon on the Mount. What does it look like to live in a, in a world where Jesus is king? That is Matthew 5 through 7. And the passage we're about to look like is the thesis statement, I believe, for the whole Sermon on the Mount. How do we be kingdom people? How do we be surrendered people? How do we be people where God's love changes us, transforms us? Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 31. Here's Jesus. So, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them. Rather, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we think about surrender, there are obstacles, there are bricks, there are roadblocks in our way. God, would you look at those with us? God, would you help us name the fear, the thing keeping us from seeking first the kingdom of God? God, help us to trust you as we seek to take those steps today. It's in Jesus' name, amen. It may surprise you to learn that the Bible is not, the Bible is not just a bunch of good advice strung together. It's actually a story. And most stories have shapes. Most stories have shapes. There's a very famous Midwest, might I add, Midwest author, Kurt Vonnegut. Everybody know Kurt Vonnegut? Slaughterhouse-Five, A Man With No Country, Kurt Vonnegut from Indy. I know. Do you consider that the Midwest? Some people like arguments about what the Midwest is. That's crazy to me. From Pennsylvania to Nevada, right? Just kidding. All right. Kurt Vonnegut gave a very famous lecture, I believe, at the University of Chicago, where he talks about the shape of a story. Stories have different shapes, but they all have shape. Now, I'll just move this back a little bit. Here we go. So, if you can't see this, don't worry. I'm, an, I'm a fantastic explainer, and I'll see by the confused looks on your faces that I need to draw it bigger, okay? So here's our, gra oh, over there, sorry. I'm going to do a great job explaining for you folks over there. All right, this is on a continuum right here, all right? This continuum going up and down is up is good and down is bad, all right? So if we're up, is that good or bad? Oh, my goodness, this is fantastic. Up is good, down is bad, all right? And this continuum right here, Kurt Vonnegut says this is just time, okay? So this is maybe the start of a story and this is the end of a story. So we've got... Good, bad, and time. Everybody tracking so far? Somebody yell out a fairy tale. Little Red, Little Red Riding Hood. Great. Little Red Riding Hood starts good. Okay? This little girl named Red Riding Hood, apparently, 
is going to visit her grandmother. What a great day. She loves grandma. That's fantastic. She's headed to visit grandma. What happens? A wolf eats her grandma. Bad. Okay? What continues to happen? She gets alone in a house with said wolf dressed as grandma. Does she recognize this wolf? No. Continues to be bad. All right, and depending on the version of the story that you have, uh, a, a Norse woodsman comes and chops up the wolf, and it gets good. Okay, that's Little Red Riding Hood. Another story? Shrek. Shrek, perfect example, starts bad. He's a weirdo. Nobody likes him. He's dirty. He's smelly. The king of the, of the land, is he good or is he bad? Bad. So our story is bad. What happens in Shrek? Penelope, Fiona. Fiona becomes an ogre. Good or bad? Oh, bad. In the, don't judge me. That's, that's, that's what the story wants you to think. She's like, you know, she's not having a good time. Bad. All right, what happens? She learns beauty is on the inside, and that Shrek is really lovely, and it gets good. Okay? Are we starting to see stories have shape? They don't all start good. Some can start bad and get good, but they have to go up and down. If your story just goes, he was born into a wealthy Connecticut family. He went to Yale. He, he met a beautiful woman. He got the job. Everything was great. That's, that's just called your brother-in-law's life. All right? And you don't care. All right, stories need to have shape and movement. What happens in the Bible? Good. All right, that word is used seven times in Genesis 1 and 2. God saw it was good, it was good, it was good. Last time, it was very good. All right, whoa, all right. It's good. It doesn't stay good very long, though. There's a lot of chapters in the Bible. Two of them are about the goodness. All right, not much. It, it really quickly gets bad. Snake deceives. Humans had desires. They wanted to rule the world with God. The snake says, you don't need God to do that. Just reach out and take. Oh, you see that? Desires. They desired a good thing to rule the world with God. But they're reaching out and taking. So what happens? Fall. It's getting bad. That's not the bottom yet, though. It keeps going down. All right? Flood. God looked out and saw that the thoughts of men's hearts were continually violent. The Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. And it doesn't just mean like they wanted to like, you know, win a Super Bowl and climb up a pole and destroy the city for no apparent reason. We're talking to you, Philadelphia. We're talking about you. It's a terrible place. Um, that's not what it means by violence. What violence means is nobody cared about each other and they weren't treating each other in truly just and human ways, right? Much like today. So it's getting bad. So what happens? Flood. Very bad. Not rock bottom. It keeps going. When do we know we hit rock bottom? Genesis 11. This will get back to the Sermon on the Mount, I promise. We're going to move that in a second. Genesis 11, verse 4. What happens? Remember in Genesis 1, God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. It's, it's going badly, this human project. It's not going well. And God's like, let's jumpstart this. Guys, we can still do this, all right? So fill the earth. And they get to the plains of Shinar, and they're like, mm, this is close enough. We're fine here. And they use technology 
They come together and they use the greatest technology in the land at that time, the brick. Right? I know you're not impressed, but back then that was really something. All right? That was the chat GPT of the ancient Near East, the brick. All right? So Genesis 11, starting in verse 1, here's how this connects. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. This is really important. I want you to hear this with me, okay? Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Okay, so they wanted to make a city that had a tower reaching to the heavens. Why did they want to do that? What was, what was the reasoning? To make a name. What does it mean to have a name? Reputation. Status. Belonging. Security. They wanted to make a name. Oh, I didn't. I still needed that. We're at the bottom of the story. What happens next. They build the tower. God comes down, confuses the language. Then what happens? They get scattered. Bad. Now we're at rock bottom. But fear not. I guess it's more dramatic this way. <laughs> this one's the Bible, right? All right. This is Genesis 11. What comes after Genesis 11? Yes, Genesis 12, it starts to go like this. It starts to get better. Who shows up in Genesis 12? Yahweh. And what does Yahweh do? He meets a guy, a redneck, this guy Abraham. His name's Abram at the time. And what does God say? Listen really carefully. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. Does that sound familiar? Yes. All right. Why? Who wanted to have a great name? Babel. They're like, let's make a great name for ourselves. And then what does God do when he shows up? I'll give you a great name. So many of us come to church wearing masks. So many of us think if people knew who I really am and what I really want and the thoughts I really have and if they could read my internet search history, they would kick me out of here. So I will hide. My story is messy. My desires are bad. Genesis 11 is the, the bottom of the bottom of the downward spiral. They wanted to make a name for themselves. When God shows up, what does he promise to give Abram? A name. What if our desires aren't the problem? What if, what if the problem is that we desire these things apart from God? The kingdom of God 
What Jesus tells us to seek first in Matthew does not say, take your desires and bury them. Would it surprise you to learn that a Christian way of dealing with our desires is to bring them to him? God, I want a great name. What do I do with that? Right? That's, what, that's how it starts in the garden. God says, rule. Then the serpent shows up and says, oh, God's withholding good from you. You need, to, you need to reach out and take. Don't receive. Reach out and take. That's how you'll be able to rule. You'll be like God. Do it without him. So they, instead of receiving, they reach out and take. Babel, it's the same thing. They want to make a name. Rather than receiving that from God, they reach out and take. They go to do it without God. And chaos ensues. When the invitation to surrender comes, it doesn't mean you say, I struggle with anger. I struggle with greed. I, I, I struggle with covetousness. Like, man, my neighbor, I know I shouldn't say they have a, their family has it all together. They have a Tesla. I want that. I come to church, I just bury that. Mm-mm, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Praise the Lord. I'm not about to explode. Just trusting the Lord. All things for good. The invitation to live in a way that is seeking first the kingdom of God, it involves surrender. It involves surrender, but it's not a surrender that's a burying. It's a surrender that's an opening of bringing ourselves to God, our whole selves. The story doesn't just start to take off here, by the way. Remember, we've talked about this a couple times. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 12, five times... God says he's going to bless Abraham. Listen and count with me. The Lord says to Abram, go from your country to your people, to your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless. That's one. You. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. That's two. I will bless. That's three. Those who bless you. Four. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed. That's five. Through you. Five times God says, hey, when you sought to do this without me, oh, it created chaos and it was a downward spiral, but I'm going to bless you in spite of that. We call that grace. We were looking at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew chapter 5, and what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth? This is how he starts the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed. Do you hear it? Blessed, 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 blessed. Our downward spiral is, has got rocket fuel in it. It goes down one more time. So we're going to keep the board out. The problem was not the desires. The problem was isolation from God. God shows up and says, blessing. Jesus shows up and says it even more. Bless, 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 bless. Blessing. I'm going to bless you. So now, when he says things to us like, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first prioritize the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Do you see the context that that statement is made in? 
It's not a God who's saying, do you like something? I'm going to take that away from you, and you're going to learn to be happy in a hard time. You're welcome. It's called the Christian life. I'm not saying there isn't suffering in the Christian life, but that is not God's heart according to the biblical narrative. Does he teach? Does he redeem through suffering? Absolutely. But his heart is not like, do you like running? Are you an athlete? I'm going to break your legs. Do you like business? Do you like the marketplace? Do you like thinking about working for yourself? You're working at McDonald's. But we think it's like that. We think, I can't trust God with my desires. I've got to reach out and take. That is what starts this. We don't believe that, though. In our hearts, in the deepest parts of us, it's so easy for us to believe. If we give, if we surrender, this happens. It's just going to go down and down and down, and there may be a bottom, and maybe I get to go to heaven when I die, and that's it. That's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about surrender. The invitation to seek first his kingdom also comes in a context. The immediate context of this is Matthew 6, 31 and 32. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what will we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. We have a God who sees us, who is attuned to our needs. And as a result, the invitation that Jesus makes is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else gets thrown in. We think, oh, yep, that first part, but that second part, I don't know. The invitation of the Sermon on the Mount is to trust Jesus enough to live with open hands. And there are men and women in this room doing just that. That's why we come together. Look, there are better sermons that you can watch online in the comfort of your Kansas City Chief pajamas. You don't have to get out of bed and come here. But why do we do such a thing? Look around the room. You totally can. We're not doing this alone. And others' faith builds our faith. When we see other people surrendered, trusting Jesus, living with open hands, we're like, I know them. I'm, if they can do it, I can do it. If they stepped out and trusted God and he provided for them, well, am I so different? This is a community event, trusting Jesus, living surrendered. It's not about burying. It's not about hiding. It's about stepping into the light and trusting that there really is life in his presence. So, the past few weeks, we've been talking about these postures. There are six of them that we've been talking about. How do we be people who really pursue renewal? How do we be people? There's six postures. We're going to be people who joyfully listen to God's word. I had a beautiful moment with my kids last night. Um, they've been going through the book of Jeremiah, 
And so uh, we were trying to look at some big events in Jeremiah. There's a big event. I think Jehoiakim, it's either Chim or Kim, is the king. And Jeremiah is prophesying, hey, you better, you better turn. This is not going well. So turn and, or else Israel will be invaded. And he writes that down on a scroll. It's God's word written on a scroll. And he takes a scribe's knife and he cuts it up and burns it. And there were other scribes there begging him, don't do this. I look over and my kids are like, why would someone do that? Like, when, when you get more mileage under the tank, we can think, oh, it's really hard to listen to God. But when you have a childlike faith, you're like, why would you not listen to God? Right? He's here. He's available. He hears us when we talk. But we've been going through life and our experiences told us, mm, no, God may speak to somebody. I don't think he's talking to us. We want to be surrendered people saying, no, we believe God's speaking to us. And when we speak to him, it changes our identity. That's what posture two, attaching to God through prayer. How do you know an attachment has been made, an attachment love? Is if we let it change our identity. So you can love your spouse. You can go through all the motion. You can say, love is a verb, you know. That's why I do all that I do for my spouse. How do you know you love your spouse? When it changes your identity. When you're like, hey, part of me being me, I don't understand without you. That's when an attachment has taken place. And we attach to God through prayer. Our identities get rolled around. Instead of thinking we are who we are and the identities we've created or the identities we fight for, we're saying, God, what does your word say about me? Who am I? We do that through prayer. Posture number three, hospitality toward unbelievers. If it's true, if it's true what they're telling us, that people are getting more and more secular in the West and fewer and fewer people are looking to church for answers, do you really think it's wise for churches to make all kinds of assumptions about people that come in through those doors? We cannot make assumptions. What if people were not greeted by assumptions but were greeted by hospitality? Love for strangers. Hey, there's a spot for you at the table. Hey, we want to know you. Who are you? We're curious. Hospitality. Number four, identifying with and caring for the powerless. It's an incredible, it's an incredible witness to say the kingdom of God has come when Christians use power differently than our neighbors do. Power is not something we fight for. It's something we use to serve others, identifying with and caring for the powerless. Posture number five, staying relationally connected when everyone is nice to you and says affirming things. That one's pretty hard. No, it's staying relationally connected when it gets painful. To not just run and hide and be like, I gave church a try. These people are just like the people I left last. I'm out. It's to say, no, I'm, I'm going to... I am going to stay, and I'm going to stay vulnerable, relationally connected when it's painful. In posture six, we want to go where Jesus leads. We think all of these are held together through the posture of surrender, the posture Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. When we prioritize the kingdom of God, we think these postures will flow out of that. When we seek first the kingdom, there are men and women in our church who over the past six weeks have been modeling this have been doing this. And I think it's really important that you hear from them, right? There's an old African proverb that says, we can go faster alone or we can go farther together. 
And so we are doing this together. And my hope is by hearing some of these testimonies, you'll trust, oh man, if God is taking care of this person, why do I think he won't take care of me if I step out and surrender? If God is showing up like that, I want that. How do I get that? We're doing this in community. First person I want you to hear from is a friend, Ethan. And Ethan, when we, when we filmed this interview, I asked him, like, are you a naturally outgoing person? And he was like, uh, sometimes. And so you're going to see someone who's really joyfully being hospitable toward unbelievers. Hospitality toward unbelievers. And he did something that uh, is a, it's a really wild story. Like a lot of us wouldn't naturally do this. He just knocked on the door of a stranger, right? And just, hey, let's, let's build relationship. And it's wild that just so happened that that door he knocked on, God had already been preparing that person for them to make a connection. So you're going to hear his testimony. And you might be thinking, man, I could never do that. Ethan thought that too. Ethan's like, man, I'm just stepping out trusting God and look at how he's taking care of me. So I want you to hear his story and hear that there are men, you're not alone. There are people doing this. Here's Ethan. One of the things Ethan is doing is he's witnessing. This is what Jesus said would happen. Uh, in Acts 1.8, his parting words to his disciples, he said this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. And you're like, man, I could never do that. Like, he is just a gregarious young college student. I would never do that. I could never do that. Well, the beautiful thing about being a witness is a witness is just a person who sees an event. And so Ethan is being Ethan. And God is using Ethan as Ethan. And he's letting him witness for him. The beautiful thing about when we bring our desires into the kingdom of God, Ethan got to experience firsthand what he testified to. Like, man, I, I, there's a lot of fear I have doing this. But he got to experience Matthew 6, 32. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. When we step out in faith, we get to experience, not just know intellectually, not just theorize about God's provision. We get to experience his provision in amazing ways. And he's modeling. And it's like, man, if Ethan can do that, that's faith building for me. One of the postures that we talked about that has just a lot of confusion about it was posture number four, identifying with and caring for the powerless. Justice. Or as I like to say and fight to say, social justice. Remember, not all social justice is biblical, but all biblical justice is social. How do we treat each other? Are we treating each other in truly human ways? The world has a recipe for power. How do you get power? You seek power. You fight for power. You take power. And then you fight to hold on to it. It's called network television. All right, that shouldn't exist, but just people fighting for power, right? In the kingdom of God, it's different. We believe God, the powerful one, gives power. And to serve the Son of Man did not come, did not come to be served. The truly powerful one came to serve, giving away power. And so we believe that the biblical invitation, a posture we can have as a church, especially where our secular friends and neighbors think they invented justice, they don't recognize, oh, human rights is as old as the Old Testament, baby. Human rights just comes out of the Torah, 
right? And we, it can be a very powerful witness that the kingdom of God is here when we pursue justice. So it's really important. We're going to hear from an elder in our church and our community outreach coordinator talking about how they're seeking to be people of justice in our community. Just to know someone as a person um, changes, um, I mean, it changes everything, really. Uh, my name is Corey Webble, and I'm one of the elders here at Compass. Uh, my name is Melissa Webble, and I am the uh, community outreach coordinator. Justice is a... Uh, a picture of the kingdom of God. Like when a, a society is just, that shows an image of the, of the kingdom of God. And so when we project that, when we uh, proclaim that, when we say um, the gospel, which is the king reigns, Jesus our king reigns, this is what it looks like to live in his kingdom, that's compelling. Come, join us. Join us in this um, kingdom um, in which people flourish, in which people are healthy, in which people are cared for. Um, that's evangelistic. That's that's inviting. That that um, that I think is. Then uh, what Issa McCauley says. It's it's evangelistic. Evangelistic from start to finish. So I think with loaves and fishes and compass church, um, I think it's a really great starting off point for people to have a chance to just dive in, be curious about people, be willing to take that step that maybe is uncomfortable um, for people. Um, even just to get in there and realize, oh, it's not as scary as I thought, you know. There's something about serving as a group. Mm -hmm. um, it's not only, I mean, besides the fact that, you know, we have a really good time together, it's just such a gift to be able to to do that to, together, to be serving. And, you know, because we know that, you know, that Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And we have this great opportunity to be like Jesus in this moment. And maybe we don't understand or um, we'll see you know, how that spreads to all these people. But even in that moment, just sharing uh, that service together as a group from Compass, uh, our relationships have built. I think our faith has built. I've seen people serve um, in pain and, you know, and it's just, it's just such a great, it's a great witness for me too. Um, and you know, sometimes, you know, when I'm making meals for 60 people in my kitchen, I, you know, it's hard to get ready to go out there and do that. But as soon as I get there, when we're working together, I just feel like, um, I'm drawn, I'm drawn to serve and to care and I have compassion because of the people I'm serving with. It's really great that Melissa has made food for 60 people. Did you hear that? But we don't want her to do that alone. All right? Like she's talked about, like, hey, service is better as we as a community come along. It's formative. Right? Like Jesus could have just declared, hey, when, when sin entered the world and things got bad, when this downward spiral happened, I, I'll just say, hey, everybody gets a do-over. But he did not do that. He enters the story. And when we get to model, we get to enter other people's stories, people that we may have ideas about, and we get to know them, and they're not just people, they become names. Kenny and Janice, Dolly, when they become names, yes, those are all country stars, when they become names, as Melissa said, that changes everything. 
So we as a church community said, hey, one of the practices we'd love for us to, to take this year is we would love every, everybody, if you're a part of Compass, if you've been here for two weeks, two years, two decades, we want everybody to say, hey, I'm going to contribute one Friday night. I'm going to sign up to do one Friday night to help with loaves and fishes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my body in a different space than it normally is, and I'm going to trust that Jesus is going to use that. So after the service, as you head out those two double doors back there, there's a blessed table, and there's people there who would love to get you signed up to serve just one Friday night. Just one, one step to say, okay, God, I, I want to embody this. What does this look like? We're saying we all want to do that, and we want to do it together. Corey talked about the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus has been announcing in the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom is near. It's here. It changes things. Here's what it looks like. The kingdom of God is God's reign over our lives. And as Dallas Willard likes to say, it is the natural home of our souls. Now, if you've been paying attention up to this point in our story, God blessed us, said it was good. We were like, mm, let's try to make our own good. God enters the story again, says, I'll bless you. We'll re don't hide those desires, bring them to me. Right? And now Jesus is saying this, hey, God's kingdom, God's reign over our lives. And there can be fear. Whoa. Does God want to do power the way I've experienced power? Are you asking me to surrender to a God who's just trying to be controlling? The beautiful thing about surrender and the beautiful thing about invitations in the Bible is when God gives us an invitation... He often says, I'll go first. Remember I said this story goes up, but it goes down before it really goes up? In Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus has just been betrayed by his friend. And he's about to get turned over to die. And he says this, Father, if you're willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus is able to invite us to surrender because he surrendered. And when he surrendered, it got very bad. Christians believe God died. Jesus' surrender on the other side there was a death, his own. And then he invites us to surrender. And if the story ended there, it's like, ah, uh, really? But it doesn't. When we surrender, we experience a death. The death of our desires, the death of our comfort, the death of our dreams, maybe even the death of a career. But in, in this story, whenever there's surrender, there's always resurrection. He didn't stay dead. And so this story has some bumps in it. It's up and it's down. 
And what we do together as a church is we say, how do we find our place in this story? This is how our life is going to look in God's kingdom. When we seek first the kingdom of God, we're like, God, I learned my lesson. I had the hard thing. I surrendered. I trusted you. Now we're good, right? That's not always the case. So we've saved the most powerful testimony for last. We, this conversation was originally 25 minutes, and Luke and I were editing it down, and we were like, I, do we have to edit anything out of this? This is a fantastic conversation. There was a lot of tears through this interview, because you're going to hear a testimony from somebody whose life has had ups and downs, and they have learned to, to live this posture of attaching to God through prayer. And this person's vulnerability is an invitation for all of us. I know, when I talk about surrender, it's scary. It's like, yeah, 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 we're Christians, we should surrender. But really doing it, really saying, God, my kids are yours. My career, God, my finances, God, my status, my reputation. I don't care about my reputation. Yeah, until they, until they say something about you on Twitter. But really saying, God, my life, I surrender. I'm yours. It can feel, and it is, like a crucifixion. But I hope by hearing this woman's courage and how God met her in surrender, it'll embolden your faith. My name is Amy Apple, and I spend time doing lots of different things, but probably the biggest is teaching private violin lessons. Uh, I've been a Christian since I was 20, and I'm now 54, so that's 34 years. So much has changed for me since 34 to 54 in my walk with Christ. It's like night and day. Right now, how I pray. My prayer time always starts with reading scripture because that's the place that God has always spoken to me really clearly from the very beginning. Um, So I start there because I feel as soon as I've read some of his word and thought about it, I've connected to him and I have something to say. And then I pray through the Lord's Prayer, um, petition by petition, sort of in technicolor, thinking about what each petition means to me and what um, some of the things that he's taught me through each petition. And I sort of bring those in and mull around with them, maybe camping more on one than another on any given day. And then I go downstairs and I light a candle and I get underneath a quilt completely covered and I talk to him and I listen to him. That Listening to God is something I've wrestled with because, um, you know, for a while I was like, I really want to listen to God. And look, okay. <laughs> you know, and then I'm like, he's not saying anything. I don't know what he's saying, you know. But from reading and thinking, I've realized that he... He speaks to me through, and I think to everybody, through their own personality and their own thoughts and their own ways of reasoning. And he's, he's going to talk to me in a way that I understand, um, which means that he's going to use my thoughts. So listening to God for me means 
talking to him and saying, daddy, I need help with this, or this is how I've been feeling. What do you think about that? Or, um, I'm just really sad right now and I want you to be with me. And then I, then I'm quiet and I listen and I just see where my thoughts take me. How do I attach to God through prayer? For me, attaching to God has come through, I call it staring at him. It's looking at passages in the Bible and asking myself, what does this passage tell me is true about God? And what does this passage tell me is true about me from his perspective? What does he say about who I am? And so through that kind of thinking and study, I, I have begun to feel that God, God thinks a lot more highly of me than I thought he did. And that just makes me feel so, so secure, so loved, so confident, um, and, and humble too. You know, it's not like, I, I, it's funny because I thought, you know, when I first thought about really delving into what is my identity in Christ, you know, I, I was kind of afraid I'd become a slacker, you know, because I wouldn't, I would think, oh, well, it's all taken care of, so I don't need to do anything now, you know. And it's just weird how that's not true. It's so weird how I, the more I sense that he just thinks I'm cool right now, the more I'm like, okay, well, what are we going to do now? Tell me what to do next. I'm ready, you know. And it's not coming from me feeling like it's an ought to or, or, a, or an earning it's not a performance. It's not, it's not showing anybody that I'm great or I've got it together, which I don't. Um, but I, I am great just because he thinks I am. My encouragement for people who are praying for the same thing for a long time and not getting an answer is that, first of all, that I'm there too. I'm praying for some things that I've been praying for for years, and they're not happening, and they don't look like they're going to happen anytime soon. And I have been desperately sad about that. But, and, <laughs> I think... Um, where it's finally come to for me is that I'm starting to see how I can be okay without those things. And that's just because of who God says I am. And so I, I think I've pinned my hopes on things sometimes and felt that if they didn't happen this way, that I couldn't be happy or I couldn't feel God's love in a way that I was looking to feel it. And, um, and somehow in the non-answering, it's like he's using that to show me 
that he still does. When I think about prayer in light of the word surrender, I think that that's what prayer is. And that's probably the biggest thing that I feel like God has been teaching me and telling me is many times over and over in my journaling with him. Sometimes I write to him and I, I say, daddy, da, 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 you know, and then, and he writes me back. I know that sounds weird, but it, he does. But what he says to me more than he says anything else is come to me, trust me, put down your burden. Let me do this. I've got this. I'm holding your right hand. I'm your savior. I'm your defender. I'm your shield. I'm your comforter. Come to me. That's it. You know, over and over and over and over again. So I feel like that's what, that's what I'm just doing. Every time I go downstairs and go get under my quilt, I'm just being weak and laying in front of them. Is there any just like, hey, here's the most important thing that's just on my heart I want to say to you about prayer? I don't know. It it's um I don't know. I just love him so much. <laughs> we experience the kingdom of God through surrender. And Amy's vulnerability is a beautiful picture of what surrender looks like. You know, it may be tricky to define surrender, but you know it when you see it. It's like, oh. And we see God caring for and trusting and providing. One of the things that keeps us from surrender is actually a really big theme in the ups and downs of this story, and it's, it's shame. It's shame. Listen to how the story starts. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They reach out and take, and then... What do they do when God shows up? They hide. Shame. Surrender is about fighting some of those lies shame tells us. If I surrender, if I lay this down, if people really know me, if God really knows me, I'm done. There's a really beautiful promise in this story. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation, no shame for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to try to practice from Amy's example. We're going to pray. What is the roadblock for your surrender? Is it shame? Is it fear? Is it anger? Does it hurt? What if instead of burying those things, we bring them to God? Now that takes trust. What's God going to do with these things I bring him? My story's messy. Can God be trusted? We think he can. And so we're going to pray together that you would take that first step of trust. And we're going to do that together. 
So there's going to be men and women up here in the front who would love to pray with you. So it's a reminder you're not alone. Yeah, it's easier to just be in your car and have that be your private prayer closet. But doing this together is a way we can care for each other. And you can, you can feel his presence palpably when someone is praying over you. So the men and women who were asked, would you join me upstage right now? Uh, and we're going to pray. Uh, Luke and the band, they're going to sing over us. Uh, one of the beautiful things uh, about uh, neuroscience is that when they show babies' brains who have a lullaby sung over them, it's just a beautiful, calming thing. And so this morning, if this song needs to be a lullaby, let it, let it be that. Just like, God, I, just, I can't sing, but I just receive what you're singing over me right now. And so we're going to pray. As you feel comfortable, just come on. These are safe people who'd love to pray with and for you. Uh, and it's always hardest to be the first. It is. But this is a really safe place because we're all wrestling with our own surrender. So we're going to take our time, all right? You'll, you're not going to a restaurant today. You're going home to make your chicken wings, all right? You're in no hurry, all right? Neither are we, all right? So we're gonna, we are going to trust God. We're going to take time and pray, and then we're just going to continue to celebrate. So we're just going to take time, pray in your seats as you feel comfortable. And if you feel God tugging you, come on up here and pray with these people. Because again, we said this in the service, you always hear three voices every Sunday. Voice of the preacher, your own voice, and the voice of the Spirit of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Come up and pray with somebody. Jesus, as we wrestle with our own surrender, I pray that you give us the courage to take that first step, whether it's coming and receiving care through prayer or whether it's just crying out to you and letting you work. God, we, we trust that you see the struggle and you know what we need. I ask these things in Jesus' name. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.